Um, this evening, we're not going to look a whole lot at Scripture itself. We're going to be laying some ground rules. So I hate to tell you this, but this is really going to be more theoretical than than studying Scripture because if if we're going to do a study of Revelation right, we, we we've got to do it the right way. And so tonight, this is this is going to be more of us setting down how we're going to go about studying this book. So I don't often say this before I preach, but please don't nap. Uh, <laughs> uh, why am I looking at you? Uh, well, I'm just, I want you to know. Um, before I do that, Larry, I don't know what I did with it. Larry gave me this uh, this morning to announce. Ah, here it is. Um, one of the things that's going on, anybody know Johnny Hunt? Heard of Johnny Hunt? Okay. Johnny Hunt is doing a uh, simulcast at the end of this month. It's actually a two-day thing, Friday night, uh, January 31st, and Saturday, February 1st. They're doing, he's doing this conference, but he's doing it by simulcast. So uh, Boone's Chapel is a place where they're going to be watching the simulcast. You do need to get tickets, and this is for, this is for men. Um, it's designed for men's ministry, so, so it'll be for men. Um, but they're going to have... They're going to have the simulcast on. They're going to be doing a dinner that Friday night and um, a little bit of a breakfast Saturday morning. So um, if you're interested in tickets to that, I've got that information. You can just see me afterwards and I'll, I'll share that with you. But um, the topic this for the, for the conference is tear down the walls and get back to your foundation. Um, sometimes if you've ever, if you've ever built something wrong, Sometimes you just got to tear out what you've built and start all over. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, sometimes we need to do that with our lives that we just, we just build it the wrong way and we got to tear it down and, and start from scratch. So, but anyway, he's, they're, they're going to be doing that simulcast. So if you're interested in that, just see me and I'll, I'll help you. Um, I'll help you find out how to, how to get tickets and, and do all that. There are probably a lot of questions that we have about the book of Revelation. Um, how do I understand all this? What what is all what do all these visions and things that he sees mean? When's this all going to take place? How do I know how world events play into setting it up? You know, is, is this something that God predicted, or is is it just all well into the future, and we may as well not even worry about it? What what should we do with this book? How do we understand what God has written in it? There's a lot of questions that surround the book of Revelation. And I'm sure uh, if you just sit down for a couple minutes and start writing some down, you'll, you'll find out you need more than one sheet of paper pretty quickly. Uh, the questions really mount. Uh, when you see visions and hear, hear things, read things that John wrote down. I, I once, I was, I was in driver's ed. And if you remember driver's ed, you don't get to drive every day in driver's ed. And I think, that microphone may be going out on me. Did you hear that? Okay. Um, so I'm just going to switch to this one. Sometimes you, um, sometimes you, you have to sit and wait your turn to drive. And um, in fact, I think I drove like twice <laughs> the whole time I was in driver's ed. So a whole semester, you know, five months, and I only get to drive two times. Um, and... While I was not driving, 
I was sitting in a class, kind of a study hall type thing. I had to sit in another teacher's class and I wasn't too terribly interested in what that teacher was teaching about. So, so, uh, I just kind of did other stuff, sometimes homework or, you know, whatever else, um, I wanted to do. And one day I decided I'm going to read through the book of Revelation. So in about an hour and a half, I read through the entire book of Revelation. And I have to say, I have, I had no clue afterwards (laughs) about anything I just read. I was just reading through. Um, so I could say I read through the book of Revelation, but, I, I really couldn't understand what I was reading. Um, even being saved, I was saved. And even knowing God, I was not terribly interested in interpreting it all. I just wanted to read through it. And I can think of things that I saw on that page that had I stopped and thought about it for a few minutes, that might have terrified me. There are things that are wonderful and glorious. There are things that are the stuff of nightmares and everything in between. And so as we approach this book with the many questions and the difficulties that we have, I want us to set out some ground rules. How are we going to understand the revelation? And I do want to talk a little bit about the timelines. I want to start with this because this is probably kind of high up. How do we know when these things are going to happen? What order are they going to be in? There's really four different approaches to this, and I I don't want to get too deep into them. We'll kind of talk more about them as we go along, but I just want to want to give you a kind of the lay of the land to kind of see, okay, what are what are the different options here uh, of of different ways of interpreting the book? One way would be called the idealist way. The idealism method basically says what happens from this point on. Everybody agrees that chapters one through three are kind of the present scene. First century. Nobody really says that those churches aren't first century. There are some that say they represent periods throughout church history, but nobody argues that they weren't literal churches in that day and time. Okay. That, that's kind of clear. The idealist says though, from chapter four on, it's pretty much all symbolic. There's nothing there. There is the struggle between God and Satan, and he's using all this vivid imagery and visions and, and all these symbols, but none of it really is going to happen. Not like that. It'll happen, but it'll happen through other kinds of events. He's just being symbolic. That's kind of the idealist way. Um, there's no tribulation, per se, except that we all face tribulation. You know, because life is just hard sometimes, and so we kind of face that. There's no particular millennium. There's no 1,000-year reign of Jesus. Um, it's just a long period of time, and it's all encapsulated in the church age. And so after everything happens, and uh, the church age is over, God is going to make everything right, and the end, happy ending, okay? Um, there's Some are going to be condemned. Some are not going to be condemned. But in the end, uh, God wins. Everything else is just it's all symbols. That's one way of describing it. Now, the problem with that is that basically ignores what the book says. <laughs> I mean, uh, John doesn't write this stuff down just to be symbolic. And, and I'll show you, uh, as we go along, I'll show you why he's writing down what he's writing down. He's seeing it happen, and he's writing down what he's seeing, but it's not all symbols. A lot of it is very literal, and the things that may not be literal, that may be figurative, we'll talk about that as we go along. But um, it's obvious that's just not right. 
And you can't really hold to that kind of position purely and be an evangelical Christian. So we can rule that out. One that's not quite so bad in that direction, but it has some of the same tendencies, is what is called preterism. The preterist view says, okay, these things are actual events. They're symbols, they're figurative language, but they represent actual events. It's just that most of them have already happened. So when the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the fall of Rome in, in whatever year that was, four or something, that's pretty much it. It was, it, all of this stuff is symbolic language, but it's referring to real events in history that have already occurred. And now this church age is kind of the millennium. It's the time when Christ would have control when he reigns. He reigns through his church. And so the church here on earth is doing the reign of God. And slowly but surely, we're getting things better. I mean, look around the world. You look in places like Africa and South America and Asia. The church is booming. People are coming to Christ left and right. You look in the Middle East. People are having visions of Jesus and coming to know him without ever hearing his name or without ever hearing anything about him, from even no, no contact with a Christian witness whatsoever, and they see Jesus in a dream and start to follow him. I mean, things are slowly but surely. Yeah, there's some bad things happening, and there are some bad trends, and those things are going to happen until God situates everything. But for the most part, we're already living in that reign of God, and then when it's over, God makes everything right. Everybody agrees that the end, God wins. Everybody agrees on that, by the way. Um, everybody agrees that the, the churches are in the first century and that God wins at the end. It's what's in the middle. You know, ver- chapters 4 to 20, 21, somewhere in there. That's where the, that's, that's where the, these different ideas separate. There's no distinct millennium, no distinct tribulation. They've either already happened, that in the case of the tribulation, in the case of the millennium, they're happening right now. They, the events that you see in this view, they may be chronological, like they may be in order, but it may be reiterations of the same thing, the same event talked about in different ways. So if you look at the seven bowls and the seven seals and the seven trumpets, each of those may be kind of rehashings of the same events over and over again. That would be the preterist view. We would mostly reject that because it allegorizes Scripture. The fact is that we cannot read our Bible simply as symbolic or even as mostly symbolic. And I'll I'll get into a little bit of that as to why shortly. The two most likely standpoints um, for us as evangelical Christians, as Baptists, would be the historian and the futurist views. The historian view, the historianist view, I should say, basically sees the events of Revelation 4 and following as actual real-life events that will happen they say that they happen in Scripture and that will happen in the order that they say will happen in Scripture. What they deny is that there's a separate millennial reign. So the the both of these two last views would say that all these events are chronological and they're in order. They would that right now the millennium is the reign of Christ happening now through the church age. The futurist view is that there is a specific reign of Jesus 
that is specifically a thousand years. It's a millennial reign, a literal millennium, 1,000 years. For the most part, if you're futurist, you see this, this is the way it happens. Tribulation, or excuse me, rapture, though some put the rapture at the end, that's very minor. Uh, most, his, most of the historicists put it at the very end uh, of, of um, everything that happens. But you would have rapture, tribulation, Christ's second coming, millennial reign, and then judgment and final consummation. Okay? Does that make sense? So for the futurist, God raptures the church. There's a period of tribulation. Jesus comes again, initiates his millennial reign on earth. Okay? This is historically the way that the church for a long time viewed it. They didn't view it with the dispensational mindset that there are these certain ages that almost like cut off. That at this point, this age ends and the next age starts. They may have viewed that as kind of bleeding into one another. Um, sometimes some folks have taught that the church in Israel are the same group. Some church, some folks teach that they're completely separate and different. We'll deal with that as we go along. But for the most part, um, those are the only two viewpoints, the historicist, the futurist that we deal with. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So I don't see any glossy eyes. That's a good thing. I'm sorry. I know this is kind of, yeah, it, it, it that's okay. We're going to deal with all this as we go along. I just want you to kind of get a lay of the land of where, how do people fall on this spectrum? I think we can fairly safely say, though, if we're going to understand Revelation, that it's not going to be in charts and graphs. It's going to be in digging in the Word of God. And so as we approach the Scripture, I want us to carry a couple of rules now, if you'll remember a while back, I did a series in studying the Bible, how to study your Bible. Um, and I basically laid out, there's three basic steps. There's, ob- there's observation. That's where you find out what the scripture says. You cannot understand the scripture if you don't know what it says. And you certainly can't apply it right without knowing what it says. So there's observation, un- knowing what the scripture says. There's interpretation. That's where you get into what it means. What does this actually mean? And then there's application, which is what does this mean to me? How does this apply to my life? Some people want to skip directly to application. They just want to read a passage and say, okay, all right, I know what this means. And so I'm just going to apply it straight to my life. Um, We're not going to do that. We're going to spend a lot of time in interpretation but we're not just going to interpret it just from the sense of understanding it. It's got to go beyond understanding. Remember when, when I preached this morning, Jesus was not filled with understanding. He impressed people by his understanding, but he wasn't filled with understanding. What does the scripture say? He was filled with what? Well, yes, the spirit. Wisdom. It wasn't just that he knew, it's that he knew how to use it. What what difference does this make? And so we'll deal a lot with application, but we're we're going to deal primarily with interpretation. How do we interpret this book? It is apocalyptic, so it describes the end, but it's also prophetic. And a lot of the rules of prophecy apply to apocalyptic literature too. 
And so I want to lay us just a few things. First, we must interpret Revelation literally, not allegorically. Now you say, well, wait a minute. What about a beast with two heads and ten horns? Is that a literal beast with ten heads and two horns? Probably, but also not. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean. When we think literal, we often think of exactly as it's written. And the problem is not everything we do is literal, right? Anybody ever written a poem? Anybody ever read a poem? Anybody know what a poem is? <laughs> okay. Poets do not use literal language, do they? I wandered lowly as a cloud, right? Sometimes I use literal language. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, right? We can kind of see that. But the, often it's very poetic. It's very figurative. It's, it's not exactly what you're trying to say. If I tell you, let's just, I, I'm not to pick on anybody, but let's just say that I'm talking to Malcolm and I say, Malcolm, your head is hard as a rock. Okay? He's shaking his head yes. Okay? You know what I mean, right? Now, am I, yeah, Mama always said, yeah, I bet she did. Uh, <laughs> That's, I know I can pick on you, so you can take it. Um, notice I don't pick on women. I just I, I just go for one or two men. But um, you know what I mean when I say that. I don't mean that if you test his hardness and you test the hardness of a rock that they're going to come out to the same measurement, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is rocks are hard. <laughs> your head's hard too, right? I'm being figurative, but we all know what I mean. It's not meant to hide any kind of meaning. It's just a, a different way of saying it. So when we're talking about literal interpretation, we're not just talking about exactly what the words say. I mean, if you read the Song of Songs literally, that would be a hideous looking woman. But we know not to read it like that. We know it's figurative. And that's different from me being allegorical. Allegorical means it doesn't really mean what it says. It means something completely different. Figurative is the meaning is in the play. The words that I'm choosing convey the meaning even though it's not exactly the way I'm saying it. It's just a vehicle for getting that meaning across. Allegory is it means something completely and totally unrelated to what I'm saying. Are there times when we can allegorize Scripture? Yes. But those times are when Jesus allegorized Scripture. When the Bible shows the allegory, we have the freedom to draw the allegory. But only when the Bible shows it. Jesus tells the story of a sower went out to seed, to seed his fields. And some falls on the path, and some falls on rocky ground, and some falls among thorns, and some falls along good ground. And then he interprets the allegory. He tells us that the seed is the word of God. And the type of soil, or the type of ground that it falls on, or the types of hearts that the word of God encounters people. Some are hard, like the path. They can't sink in, and birds come away and take them and devour them. It's not allegory. In the it, <laughs> this is the second microphone <laughs> that's trying to cut out on me. I don't know. It's allegory in the sense that he's saying something different from what he's saying. 
but he's showing you what it means. We don't have that freedom to do that unless the Bible does it for us. So we interpret literally. Bernard Rahm wrote a book called Protestant Biblical Interpretation. He says this, the customary socially acknowledged designation of a word is the literal meaning of that term. What he's saying is if you say something and everybody knows what you mean, that's what it means. So when we talk about literal, we're talking about speaking in a way that everyone understands. Now, that might mean we have to get into our first century shoes and we got to get out of our 21st century mindset and into theirs so we can understand it. We need to understand that this is written to some churches, some pretty difficult situations, and we might have to step into their shoes to understand it the way they heard it. But it doesn't mean we can just draw whatever conclusion we want to draw. We've got to read it literally. What, what, is, what words and phrases is, are he using to convey the meaning? What's the basic meaning that he's conveying? We can't just come up with our own stuff. We know that the literal method is best because that's how we talk, for one thing. We, we are literal. And when we're not literal, your head is hard as a rock. How many of you know that rocks are hard? Otherwise, you wouldn't understand that, would you? So even when we're not speaking literally, even when we're speaking figuratively, it's a literal thing that underlies the figurative speech. Pen Dwight Pentecost points out that every use of the Old Testament in the New Testament is a literal use. The New Testament does not allegorize the Old Testament. Now, it sometimes shows this is a picture of what's to come, but it never draws an allegory. It's always showing a relationship to a literal understanding of the Old Testament. Bernard Rahm also uh, identifies that literal, literal interpretation is consistent with the nature of biblical inspiration. If the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, it must be taken literally. Otherwise, it wouldn't be clear enough for us to understand. If the whole point in, in translating this scripture through the hands of men was for them to write something allegorical, how would we even know what they meant? And how would we even know what truth is? It's got to be literal for us to, for us to understand scripture the way that we do. It's got to be literal. So we interpret it literally, not, not allegorically. And if God says, okay, this is a symbol that means this, then we have the freedom to do that. But only when he does it. Otherwise, we need to stick to the literal meaning. Secondly, we interpret revelation within context, not isolated. We cannot take revelation on its own, and we cannot take revelation one passage apart from another passage. We can't just read into this verse what we want to read into this verse, and that verse what we want to read into that verse, and that verse what we want to read into that verse. You know what we call that? Wrong. <laughs> you can't do that. If something means something, it means something, right? It, it means that same thing. Um, if there's a picture of the beast, uh, the, the, the animal with two horns and, or two heads and ten horns, and it describes that picture, then anytime you see that picture, it's, he's going to be talking about the same thing. It doesn't change meaning from passage to passage, verse to verse. Some people will try to make one thing 
seem like something and another thing seem like something else when it's the same picture in both. And the author does that not to confuse us, but to, to help us. I mean, some of y'all had trouble in algebra. <laughs> if you learned a formula with a letter and then they changed the letter, they used the same letter in a different formula to mean something completely different. It, it would, it would be hard to figure out, wouldn't it? So, um, when I was in, I, I, I got a degree in finance. So when I was in finance, I told y'all earlier, we, we would have a list of formulas. I had a professor that would give us a list of formulas. Uh, he didn't care about me. I don't, I don't know. Did I tell y'all this this morning? It was in my mind. I don't know if I actually said it or not. Um, he gave us this list of formulas on the back page of every test because he said, I don't care if I give you the form. I don't care that you memorize the formula. I just want you to know how to use it. <laughs> that was, that was his whole point. He made sure that the, that the letters in the formulas would match up to the same thing between formulas. So if he used a letter in a specific formula for something, it kept that letter in other formulas. Does that make sense? When we try to interpret Revelation, taking each passage on its own, we rob the book of its unity, but we also make it a whole lot harder on ourselves. We've got to read it in context. And related to that, we have to read it consistently. We can't let it vary back and forth to and from. You see, this book is written in the context of a scripture. And if you look at the whole context of scripture, it becomes a lot clearer what it says. There's a biblical context. There's a grammatical context. The words do not have meaning apart from where they're used and how they're used. But at the same time, what that phrase means and what that sentence means, what that paragraph means, comes down to what those words mean when they're put together in that context. There's a historical context. Some of the things that he writes in Revelation to a first century church, he would not write the same way if he was writing to us today because there's a different context. He might have the same message, but it would have different words. You see, we have to take the book in its context in order to understand it. Charles Feinberg points this out. Every prophecy is part of a wonderful scheme of revelation. For the true significance of any prophecy, the whole prophetic scheme must be kept in mind and the interrelationship between the parts in the plan as well. In order to understand this piece, you got to have a picture of the big, you got to have that image of the big picture in your head and where it fits, and how it fits to this piece next to it, and the one above it, and the one below it, and the one on the other side. So as we're reading through this, we read it in context. We don't just read it isolated. We don't just pick a verse out and go for it. I have never heard good, good preaching if the preacher takes the verse out of context. I've heard some pretty good speaking, but I've never heard good preaching when the verses are taken out of context. Usually I hear a lot of junk. We interpret, I've mentioned this consistently. Second Peter says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Let me read that again. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And so if we know that, we know that if we are going to interpret this book, we have to be consistent, consistent with the God who wrote it, consistent with the rest of what he wrote. We can't do it whimsically. we got to do it consistently. Dwight Pentecost again says, it may be safely stated that the problem in the interpretation of prophecy is this problem of consistency. To the degree we have been inconsistent in the application of sound hermeneutical principles, that's, that's interpretive principles, we have been in error in our conclusions and interpretations. In other words, when we stop doing it the right way, that's when the error comes in. So we've got to be consistent. We've got to make sure we apply the same rules to every passage. We can't interpret this one literally and the next one allegorically. We've got to have the same rules throughout. We interpret Revelation hazily. In other words, not quite as clearly as we would like. But we dare not interpret it lazily. Just because we can't know everything that God has said does not mean that we shouldn't try. We cannot let a lack of understanding prevent us from that pursuit. Now, are we going to get it all? No. You're not going to get it all. Let me tell you why you're not going to get it all. Raise your hand if you're God. Okay, yeah, that's why we don't get it all. Paul says we look through a glass darkly. There's a lot of haze on that, and we're trying to see, but it's just hard. I have windows in my house that aren't the insulated double-pane windows, um, and so uh, they've gotten this haze on the glass that, that I can't see through. I try to look out in the backyard, and I can't see through it very well. It's what it's like trying to look at this scripture sometimes, especially in Revelation. It, it looks hard, hard to make out some things. We, we should be able to live with that tension of not understanding everything, but that doesn't mean we can't understand anything. There's some things that are clear. I can tell there are trees in my yard, even when I'm looking through that hazy window. I can tell that there's a whole lot more leaves than I'd like to admit on the ground. I can tell some things, even though I can't see them clearly, even though I, I don't get the f- clearest picture. And when we're looking at this revelation, there's going to be times where your head's spinning and you just, you just don't get it all. And you want to, but you just can't. That's okay. God, God knows. However, there's another reason. Anybody like to stargaze? Look up at the sky. All kinds of cool stuff up there. Um, one of my favorites is Orion because it's so easy to see. I mean, it's it's visible a lot of time. There's a lot of times that Orion is visible, and so it's easy to find that belt. And once you find the belt, those three stars, uh, it's pretty easy to find the rest of Orion. You know, gets you get oriented, and you can see his arms and his legs and everything. And you can use that to find other stars too. You can use certain things to figure out where other stars are. Uh, it's the way that you navigate on the ocean when you don't have lights or GPS or anything like that. That's what they did. They navigate by starlight. Um, it's the way the wise men found Jesus was by star. Um, but what's interesting about those stars is you look at them in the sky and they look pretty close. They look like they're far away, but they kind of look close to each other. So there's three stars in Orion's belt. Alnatak is one of them. Alnalam is one of them. And Mintica is the other. Mintica is the closest. Only 1,200 light years. 
So if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you 1,200 years to get there. It's not too far. <laughs> I'll let that sink in for a second. Our closest star is only like four or five light years away. It's, I think, 3.8, if I remember. Uh, Beta Centauri, I believe. It's 3.8 light years away. So, you know, that one's, that one's nowhere close to doable. <laughs> but seems a lot closer, doesn't it? So it's 1,200 light years away. Alnatak is um, 1,260 light years away. So only 60 more light years, and you got that. Alnawam is 2,000 light years away. They, they don't look that far apart, but there's a whole lot of space in between them. Sometimes when we look at prophecy, when we look at the future, when we look at Revelation, um, we see things, and they look like they're all close together. But the closer we get, the more we realize that one is really close, and one thing's really far away. It's like stars. Some of the stars are much, much farther away than others. And it's much easier from our perspective to think they're right next to each other because we're looking at such a distance we just can't see it. That's exactly what happens in this book. Some things just, they look a little different from our perspective than they will when we actually see them come to pass. There are things that look like they're close and they're far. There are things that look like they're far and they're close. There are things that look like they're near and there's a big difference between them. But in all these things, we recognize that the main point of Revelation is not the timing. It's not the nitpicky details that we're going to get into. It's not understanding every single thing that John sees. The point of Revelation is seeing Christ glorified. After all, it is his revelation. It's about revealing him. And so as we interpret Revelation, the last thing I want to leave you with tonight is that we interpret it Christologically. We interpret it with an eye on Christ because he is the star. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about the tribulation or the millennial reign. It's not about all these great works. It's not about the glory of heaven, seeing the new heaven and new earth come down, picturing the, the golded, gold-laden streets and the stone in the walls of that city. That, that, that's not the point. The point is Jesus. And if you miss the point, you miss everything. Let's not make the mistake that so many do and miss Jesus in all the commotion. When we interpret this book, let's look for him. Let's see what he does, who he is. Now let's bring him the honor and glory that he deserves. Because in the end, that's what we're here for. Let me pray for you. Father, may we realize that this book in front of us is here to show us your son. May he be revealed in all his glory. May we sing your praises now and forevermore for just how great you are. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Even so, come Lord Jesus. With that we say, in Jesus' name, amen.